Welcome back. This is episode 21 of Building Optimal Radio. I'm Jared Gossett. This is the final of a three-part series with David Gerstel. For those of you who haven't listened to our previous interviews with David, he is a very well-known speaker, author, and also a builder. Uh, The guy has a ton of experience in the industry, and uh, today he's going to be enlightening us on how we can create better subcontractor relationships. It's an area that I could use a little help with sometimes. Uh, Just saying. I'm sure that you guys could as well. So anyway, hope you enjoy it. Hope everybody is doing well. All right. So talking about better subcontractor relationships here. One of the biggest reasons for profit margin slippage in a project or costs that you didn't budget, and this often ties into miscommunications with our subs or as we've been referring to them and as I prefer to refer to them as trade partners. These things that they, you know, they didn't include in their bid uh, are, are usually the problem. So you have an answer to this with something that you call an included slash not included form. Can you talk about that? I have a form that I call a included, as you said, an included, not included form. It's basically a, you know, one page form, eight and a half by 11 typewriter size sheet of paper. I was introduced to this idea by a really outstanding plumbing subcontractor who did our, our work for years. He found over and over, you know, himself getting out the jobs and being told that work that he had not included in his estimate was in it was his area in his area of responsibility, and he had to do it. And he'd get in big fights with the generals about that. And he got tired of doing that, so he, made, he created this form. And I'll tell you what's on the form. I took his form and I made a sort of a generic version out of it that I could use with subs in any trade. I think you know if you are having problems with items of work falling between you and a sub or between subs on a job, you got a, you know, let's say, uh, you know, a flashing detail of some sort. Um, maybe the, uh, the jacks for plumbing vents. Um, I mean, maybe the roofer thinks the plumber is going to provide those and maybe the plumber thinks the roofer is going to provide them. And it's a bit fictitious, but maybe both of them think the sheet metal guys are going to provide them, but nobody's got them included in their bid and nobody wants to, pay for them because they don't have them included in their bid. You want to prevent that, that sort of a, a happening. You don't want to, you want to do the best you can to make sure somebody, some sub, some trade partner, or, or at least yourself when you're estimating the work for your own crew, have every item on the job included. Every item's included somewhere. You're not going to ever reach perfection, of course, but you can get pretty darn close. And these, Included, not included forms really help because every sub fills one out. Basically, writes the name of his company, signs it, names the project. The not included included forms says, our bid is based on the following plans and specifications for the above named project. And then he details out the plans on which he's based his estimate. Next line down, our bid includes all work and costs regularly though not necessarily always covered by our trade, accepting items circled below to indicate they are not included. Here's a sampling of the items that are listed below. Building permit. 
off-haul of excess soil, demolition, uh, cut and patch, scaffolding. Maybe you don't really need scaffolding on your job except to support one sub. Well, you want to make sure he's including it in his bid or telling you it's not included and that he's expecting you to have it out there for him. Blocking, fire stops, insulation. There's a list here of about 20 or so items that can either be included or not included. But this is a generic included, not included checklist, meaning used by any sub. Really, you want to get your subs in the habit of using this and then nudge them over to creating their own included, not included checklist because they'll be more appropriate to each particular trade partner, each particular trade than will a generic list. And if you get your subs, your trade partners in the habit of using these included, not included checklists, you'll go a long, long way toward eliminating items that otherwise might have slipped between the trades. I, one of the guys I interviewed for this book, one of many guys I interviewed actually prior to writing the book, would told me, in fact, a number of guys told me, you know, we're, we're always having to split the difference with subs for items that they didn't include in their bid and that we didn't include anywhere else in our bid. We don't want to alienate our subs, so we split the difference with them. You end up splitting the difference a bunch of times on a job, it adds up to quite a bit of money. You know, maybe it happens once or twice, that's okay, that's inevitable. But you don't want it to happen a lot. So that's what this, this included, not included checklist gets you away from. I think it's a great tool. I wish I could take credit for inventing it, but I, I can't. I'm just passing it on. Yeah, well, one thing I love is just the simplicity of the solution. You know, so, sometimes the best solutions are the simplest. And, and I mean, it's not rocket science, but it, it's it hits at the heart of the issue, which is communication. And it, it solves that head on. So I, I love it. Uh, I have never used anything like it before, which is why I'm thrilled to uh, have come across it in your book. And we will be using it in the future. Oh, cool. Okay, so... Let's talk a little bit more about uh, about some issues that a lot of us are dealing with right now. You know, <laughs> I think I'm, I'm asking you this question, hoping you got a magic bullet, and I don't know if there is one. But uh, in today's market, it seems like quality control with our trade partners is, is an issue. And, you know, everybody's so busy that it seems like a lot of lot of trade partners have their foreman spread thin and, and they're not always on the job sites checking their work. And so issues naturally are going to arise. I, you know, I don't know. Are there any tricks that you have up your sleeve to ensure better quality control? I think the answer you know, goes back to the issues we were discussing in the earlier podcast, you know, to the answers that I sort of dug up when I was trying to address uh, employee relationships and trade partner relationships. And I mentioned the idea of the employee centered company and extrapolated from that to the idea of the trade partner centered company. You know, if you're having that problem, you're probably not going to be able to solve it during the period of time when you're having the problem. You solve it by building relationships with your trade partners that are so good during times prior to the kind of boom we're having. And this kind of boom is not unique, man. I mean, things that guys are complaining about and talking about now, bemoaning, have happened a number of times in my time in construction and there are periods of intense boom it's but it's in the in-between periods that you build a solution to the problems that crop up during boom times you develop a team of really good trade partners and you work with them over and over and uh, you know they're part of the team you bring to a job 
and uh, you treat them well. You, give, you provide them with you have, you have. I mean, you must have deep, genuine respect for them, and you must manifest it. And that respect includes respect for their financial needs and for their need to be notified well ahead of time of when you're going to need them. And it includes respect of having the job site ready for them when they get there. And if they counter that, that trust and that investment in the relationship with them by letting you down on a job, maybe you might give them a pass one time, but the next time you take their heads off. I didn't ever have this kind of problem that you're describing. I'd like to think that part of the reason is that I did build a trade center, employee-centered company. Honestly, another part of the reason is personality. Um, I've never had much investment in being known as a nice guy. It's a good thing because I never would have gotten much return on any efforts I made in that direction. I've had investment in being respected in other ways, which I won't go into here, but I do perceive that occasionally a general contractor wants too badly to be known as a nice guy and just doesn't want to be tough with people. I don't think that works. I mean, if I had a trade partner that I'd stood by for years and I'd given work to for years and respected for years, and then things get really busy and he, you know, throws me in the ditch, I would take his, I, I don't want to curse here, but I was about to curse. I mean, it's a very thought. I take his head off and I would put the fear of God into him. And I'm not kidding. I know how to intimidate and I would do it. Yeah, I'd, I'd tell him, I'm going to put you out of business, you son of a bitch. <laughs> you know, if he was in a really difficult spot and explained it to me honestly and said, Dave, can you find a way to give me a little, a little, an extra couple of days? I'd say, sure, we're going to work that out. And going into going into a job in a time like this, also, when I wrote a contract, I would say to the client, look, this is normally an eight-month job, but these are boom times and period. People are really stressed and stretched. And occasionally the job is not going to move along as quickly as we would like. And we're going to put in the contract 10 months, not eight. Now, I hope to goodness it doesn't take 10 months, and I don't think it will, but it might go nine. Because we may occasionally have to say to a sub, you know what, we'll see you in three or four days instead of tomorrow. Because we, we don't want to beat the guy up. So there's, those are my thoughts about that. I want to talk about scopes of work for a second. You know, we don't use them. I, a lot of my builder colleagues and friends don't use them either. We just try to create really detailed bid requests. But I, every like home building consultant I've ever talked to, is, you know, asks us about, well, show me your scopes of work or what scopes of work are you using? I, I don't know. What, what are your feelings about scopes of work? Well, let me make sure I know what you're referring to. You're, you're bidding for jobs designed by architects and designers, right? That's right. And are you bidding competitively? We've been fortunate to where probably only about 25 or 30% of the jobs that we ever bid are competitively bid. So I, I don't know how to answer that. I guess sometimes yes, sometimes no. Okay, well, I just pub just finished an article for the Journal of Light Construction that touches on this issue. Here's how I view it. And, and there are very different views of this issue in the industry. And I don't necessarily think I've got the right one. All I know is I've got the right one for me. If somebody asks you to bid a job without charge against other bidders, 
uh, maybe a lot more bidders than they're telling you about. And they want you to provide a bid without pay, without providing pre-construction services reimbursed at a professional rate. The scope of work is what's in the drawings and the plans that they hand you and in the specs and the plans that they hand you. And everything else is a change order. They are, as far as I'm concerned, they're fair game, man. And you, you, it's not your job to, to let them know this architect you hired you know, at a cut rate so you could build a bigger house than the one you'd otherwise be able to build has provided you with plans and specs that are missing 20% of the work that's going to have to be done. Everything they left out is a change order. You get the job and then you start writing the change orders. And you'll get, you'll get them signed. And here's why. When you're bidding the job, you're in a competitive marketplace. But once you've won the job, you're in a monopolist position. The owner is stuck with you. He doesn't have another contractor he can go to and get a bid. Because if he does, the job stops. And that's got real severe consequences for him. So you write the change orders. It's almost cruel, that attitude. And I don't know if I can actually act on it. I don't do competitive bidding. Maybe I would, against my better judgment, turn into a nice guy momentarily and say to the owner, you know what, you better be really careful. We're bidding what's on the plans and specs, but there's an awful lot that's missing. On the other hand, if you're being paid for your pre-construction services, if you're being paid to do what I call cost planning, then I think it's your obligation to ferret out every possible cost in the job and let the owner know about it in advance. So if you're doing a remodel, you want to let the owner know, look, I want to get a pest control inspector in here and inspect your house So we, because I know you've got dry rot here, and I want to get a, a really good handle on the scope of it. And a good pest control inspector is going to do that better than I do because he does it every day. And I got a good guy and he'll do this inspection for 200 bucks. And then we'll make sure all that necessary remediation is included in your contract price so you don't get ambushed by extra costs during the job. That's it's part of your job to warn the owner of those jobs, the owner of those costs. I also include, and this is my maybe my, my different name for what you're calling scope of work. When I'm cost planning a job, and all, almost all of my work is done by cost planning, I hardly ever did competitive bidding, as I mentioned earlier, I think, in an earlier podcast. I create assumptions. I mean, there may be aspects of the job which aren't quite detailed out yet. So I'll write out an assumption that says, you know, kitchen counter to be tiled or vanity counter to be tiled, tile to be installed on a mortar bed, allowance for tile material. X dollars a square foot for field material, X dollars a square foot, you know, a linear foot for detailed material. I'll write an assumption like that for many of the details of the job if they're not fully called out. And there always are details that aren't fully called out. A residential architecture is a money, a money tough business, and architects just don't get paid enough to completely detailed job. So you you gotta help them out a bit. And it's your job to do that if you're being paid you know, for the pre-construction work. Your job is to protect the owner rather than set them up to get, you know, beaten up by change orders. So that's my thought on it. That's what works for me. I, I know other people would have other approaches that are probably very good. Yeah, but that seems like a rational approach. I, I, um, I have charged for pre-construction and I have it. And, and uh, we've been fortunate to where we, we've only lost, I think we've actually only lost one job ever that we, we bid and that we, that we wanted. And, and, uh, 
that was of course one that I didn't charge pre-construction on. And so I, I regret it. I told myself, I'm going to, I'm going to make sure I do it from, from here forward. Let's talk about pay cycle to subcontractors on the subcontractor theme. What, what do you recommend is, is the best pay cycle that makes sense for both the builder that, but also keeps the subcontractors happy? I don't know what I'd recommend. I think different people are in different financial situations, but I felt that an important aspect of running a strong construction company, I still feel that an important aspect of running a strong construction company is to have a very large capital reserve. Um, and one thing that allows you to do is um, pay your guys right, right after they bill you. I mean, I, for some of my subs who are really tiny little companies who uh, I know didn't have you know, a lot of money, I'd write them a check as I left the job site, every, you know, ever so often. But what I always did was, you know, preferred was to get an invoice and I'd pay it the next Monday. For me, that's part of running a trade partners that is sub-centered company. I remember asking once one of my favorite subs, a wonderful plasterer, you know, why do you and the other guy, I mean, you guys have been working with me for years. Why do you guys stick with me? Come on, tell me. Because I know I'm not an easy guy. I mean, I'm tough. You know, if, if you guys slip a little, I'll be on you. Um, so why do you put up with me? And he said, well, you are a SOB, Dave. That's true. But he was smiling a little bit because we actually like each other quite a lot. He's become a lifelong friend. But he said, there's two reasons. He said, one, you never lose control of your job sites. And there's never chaos out here. It's always safe. And the other thing is you pay immediately. You don't try and use pay as a lever to get, you know, to get control of us or to maneuver us one way or the other. You never hold it, hold payment as a club over our heads. So I, I think it's a great investment. Yeah. You know, to well, pay immediately. And, and, but to do that, you got to have money in the bank. And to get keep money in the bank, you got to have low overhead. Yeah. I think that's a really good perspective and, and all – I'll add mine to it, which it kind of ties into what you were talking about earlier with communication with trade partners. I, I think whatever the system may be, whether it's a five day, 10 day, 15 day pay cycle, I, I think it has to be communicated and agreed upon with that trade partner and, and, and stuck to and followed because ultimately that's, that's what, that's what gets you into so many of your problems with your trade partners is you can you can almost always tie it back to some lack of communication. And same thing with with payment. As long as expectations are set up front and everybody agrees and signs off on that bid with clear expectations, that's going to be the primary driver. And and create a system. My company has a system, and we do we do break it sometimes. Sometimes when a guy's in a tight spot and needs help, like kind of like what you referenced. You know, we may we may cut a check every so often when somebody walks off the job site, but it's always only after we've inspected work, make sure that it's earned. And almost all the time it's following a specific system that we have agreed with that trade partner. And that helps from my overhead management perspective, that helps my company run a lot smoother and more efficiently because we're repeating the same process over and over and there's less, less stuff that gets in and mucks it up. I think it's perfect. You, you, and I think it's probably more important to let the sub know what the pay cycle is than that have one pay cycle or another. You let them know what it is, and then you stick to it, and they can count on that check being there at a certain time. The times I would write checks to guys on the job site, um, I was just thinking was 
primary reason was these guys were so bad at business, they didn't really know how to write an invoice. <laughs> right. So yeah. that was a struggle for them. You know, they didn't have office procedures. Yeah, yeah. I mean, every once in a while you get a you get a great trade partner that doesn't know how to use a computer or anything like that. And yeah, you sometimes amend your system if you if they're so good that you want to work with them. Yeah. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Do you ever invite like multiple trade partners to bid to competitively bid your project or or do you just have that one trade partner that I, I know your company uses? Do you just use them over and over and over again? Very rarely did I see competitive bids. If I did, I let the trade partner know. And if I did, it would be in part to keep a little, you know, to make sure the trade partner's prices just didn't start slipping up because he was entirely confident that he would get the job no matter what number he handed me. However, I'd like to mention that there's a builder named Paul Eldrin Camp. While I occasionally would use, would take a competitive bid against one of my standard trade partners, partly to kind of keep him in line a little bit on pricing, I think Paul had a better method. For each bid, he would record and track the percentage of the bid, or the bid price that was allocated or taken, let's say, by each of the individual trades. So he would, and then he would collate that information so that he could see that on kitchen remodels, um, typically the plumbing ran, let's say, 11% of the total direct costs, not the selling price, but the total direct cost of the job. So if he'd get a bid from a plum, plumbing set from his favorite trade partner, he too worked over and over with the same trade partners, just like me. And the guy was at 11% on a kitchen remodel, fine. Paul knew that was what he should have expected. And if it was 9%, he might go to the trade partner and say, are you sure you got everything included? Because you're, you're a little lower than I would have expected. And the trade partner would explain, yeah, but this is a real simple job. I know I'm lower, but I got everything covered. Don't worry. And then it was suddenly a trade partner, say an electrician, went from 7 to 15% on a particular kind of remodel. Paul would give him a call and say, what's going on here, man? I mean, your price is twice what is typical. And the electrician better have a good answer. He better be able to explain the complexities that introduced that price jump. And if he couldn't, Paul would say, don't do this to me again. I mean, I imagine he would. I don't know what he would say. I would have said, don't do this to me again if you want to keep working for me. Uh, your, your prices need to be fair. Um, don't try and take advantage of the fact that we work with you over and over and trust you. Don't abuse our trust. I thought that was a great system. I never used it. I think it's a great system. Yeah. that That's pretty much in line with the best that I've ever figured out. And the whole debate, do you competitively bid people i me and my team firmly believe like you do to f establish that relationship with one trade partner keep using them over and over but then you got to ask the question how do you make sure that they don't start creeping up their price and i think it's that periodic spot check and i've spot checked with getting other other bidders who've wanted our business from time to time. I don't really like that and the reason why is because and I don't do it that often because it feels to some extent dishonest because if if I go seek a bid from somebody knowing that I am not earnestly planning to use them unless there's really something wrong that pops up, I feel bad about it and that's why I don't really 
I don't really do it. It doesn't feel like the most honest pursuit. So uh, this this whole the, I really like Paul's approach to figuring out a kind of a historical benchmarks and going off of those. We we kind of just eyeball it, uh, and that's so same concept in terms of using benchmarks. But we we probably aren't as scientific as he was, and and I like that direction of trying to create specific collated data that you can use to then track that information. I think that's a fantastic system. You know, I, I think if I was to set it up, the way I would do it is I would set up my spreadsheet so that the percentage of the direct costs consumed by each trade just automatically appeared on the spreadsheet. You could set up a spreadsheet, easily set up an Excel spreadsheet to do that. And pretty soon, you're not even going to have to go check your records. You're going to know that you know, electrical is typically 7%, plumbing 11% or whatever, you'll scan your percentage column and say, this is all right about where it should be. I'm not going to second guess myself here. Except, Whoa, wait a minute. The tile is 14% of the job. It should be four. And you call your tile sub. You could, you could automate it and you would, you would pretty quickly have in your head just where the percentages should fall. We're going to have to at least reach out to Paul, see if, see if he's interested in, talking on the show all right david well that uh this has been a, a marathon of a series but it's been a i think at least extremely illuminating for me i think for our listeners as well i really appreciate your your time to come on and discuss these topics very relevant topics in in our current environment and really really market agnostic anytime i think these are these are going to be valuable tips for people so thank you, David. Much appreciated. I appreciate anybody who listens. Uh, it's, hopefully it's of some use to folks who did listen. 